It's often said that life can change in the blink of an eye. Anyone who has ever experienced a sudden death or any kind of life-changing surprise would agree, of course. Life can change in the blink of an eye. That's why I'm glad my eyes didn't blink when my wife Stella's phone dinged as she got a message from her sister, who was married to one of my colleagues. The text was innocuous. It was a message about her husband's trip to Poland on what could be called a bearing witness trip. Almost literally slapped together by a couple of American rabbis, it was anything but a conventional and organized trip. In fact, it was a complete balagan, state of confusion. It was an on-the-run humanitarian mission that had not one hallmark of a vacation. And my wife immediately said to me, you need to go. And so, in the blink of an eye and without any experience in Poland, the plane tickets were bought, the reservations in the hotel confirmed, and again, in the blink of an eye, with really no time to prepare myself, I rallied the temple behind me, which was an amazingly easy job to do, by the way, collected underwear, pain medication, and about $15,000. And in a strange way, the speed at which everything happened faintly echoed the plight of the Ukrainians that we were destined to meet. The support of Beth, Miriam, and their enthusiastic endorsement for me to go gave me the necessary strength, emotional and physical, to bear witness to this immense human tragedy. How could I not be energized when a professional firm offers their PR person both before and after the trip to do all the work of getting the message out? Or seeing our religious school children selling lemonade on the streets in little silver? Or the bags of goods to take with me for the women and children who we were to see? It's not hyperbole to say that by knowing how supportive you were of this trip, I would not have able to been get there and back, and survived on two or three hours of sleep a night for a week. In the blink of an eye, your lives changed as you literally changed the lives of a Ukrainian stranger you never met, and probably will never meet. But in a way, you did meet them, and I'm sharing them with you because when I went to Poland, you came to Poland with me. They are the few people who are among the 2.25 million who came to Poland from Ukraine fleeing the Russian invasion. 150,000 of them found themselves in Krakow, where we stayed. Before the war, Krakow had 650,000 people. Now it has 800,000. And among those, I met some incredible people, and I want to share two of them with you. Zosia, as you may have seen from my Facebook posts, is 88 years old. She was born in Krakow, and in 1939 was the first country invaded by Nazi Germany. She never left the city. Somehow, in one of those unbelievable war stories, her father got her family fake papers, and they were never found or deported by the Nazis. Almost literally in the shadow of Oskar Schindler's family, which saved 1,200 Jews, Zosia and her family stayed alive simply because they were good actors. She is one of those rare people who only speaks six languages. 
She speaks with Ukrainians all day long. She helps them get oriented. But she said something interesting that we heard again and again. In the southeast of the country, Russian is the spoken language. And when these people left and ended up in Poland, each and every one of them that we met vowed never to speak Russian again. They have utter disdain for the country. And Zosia, who speaks Russian, said she will never speak it again. Zosia is typical of the way that Poles have responded to the crisis. Our group of 24 or 25 rabbis went to three crisis centers. In each, there were hundreds of refugees, women and children, and almost no men. There for a few days before going to a government-paid-for hotel, these people were immediately absorbed in the country. And most of the work was done by volunteers like Zosia. There were few professionals. Teenagers staffed the phone banks. Journalists ran call centers. JCC directors ran crisis response teams. No one did it for the glory. No one did it for the accolades. All of this work was organized in one week by volunteers and by the Polish government with both local and national participation. And in eight weeks of this war, millions of lives were saved because of the work of these volunteers. So, why the incredible response? When Jews think of Poland, what usually thinks what, what, what usually comes to mind? Concentration camps. In fact, when I was in Warsaw, home of the infamous Warsaw Ghetto, and waiting for my plane to Krakow, the board listed all of the next flights. So help me God, every one of them was a place known for a terrible concentration camp, including Krakow, my destination. How can we not think of Poland this way? And for the past seven decades, the Poles knew how the world saw them. Most of the concentration camps were in Poland. Krakow was where all of the terrible things from Schindler's List happened. Auschwitz was a one and a half hour drive from my hotel. And in every small town, every Jew was exterminated. Now, only monuments remain where Jews once lived and thrived and played. Where at towns like Peshimel on the Ukraine border was one-third Jewish, now it is bereft of Jews. To be known primarily for this is overwhelming. But they were not defined by the Nazi aggression inflicted upon them. But on the thing that did define them, which was anger. Anger that in 1939, no one came to their aid. They were determined that what no one did for them in 1939, they would never do in 2022 to the Ukrainians. This war, if there is anything anything good to come out of it, is an exercise of redemption and resolve for Poland. Is it a perfect response? Of course not. We are talking about governments and people, echoes of prejudice and racism. But the simple fact is that with two and a quarter million new residents who in the blink of an eye had to leave their homes in the past seven or eight weeks, not one person is in a tent in a refugee camp And there are no tent cities on the Ukraine side of the border.
And now I want you to meet Nastya. With her five-year-old daughter, she left Mikolaev, which is in the southeast of the country, leaving her husband and her parents behind. And in the last year of medical school, she found herself being a mom on a Monday and a refugee on a Tuesday as her town got shelled. And quite understandably, she is angry. But unlike many Ukrainians we met, she is mad at every Russian soldier. She told us that it is not Putin who is shooting people, raping women, and destroying cities. It is Russian soldiers, and to try to exonerate them is to let them off the hook for their barbaric behavior. But her biggest problem? No, it's not the relocation. No, it's not the fact that her home does not exist anymore. No, it's not even the fact that she will have to learn Polish and finish medical school in Poland. No, her biggest problem was how to teach her daughter not to hate. It was a stunning statement, and it will remain with me for the rest of my life. And how easy it is to hate. But in the midst of all this potential to hate, I saw amazing acts of love and respect. A couple of days before our Friday Seders back in the United States, we did a Seder in the border town. More than 200, 250 people came to Seder. There were rabbis, emergency workers, Ukrainian refugees, volunteers from the area. There were medical workers and so forth. And just as we were about to get started, several young Ukrainians came in with their customary dress. And what is the customary dress of Ukraine? If you have ever seen a picture of a Cossack, that's what these people looked like. The women were wearing flower crowns and both the men and women were wearing the traditional clothes. Women were wearing a placha, which is an embroidered shirt, and men were wearing a, a porti, a kind of a kaftan that covered their whole body down to their knees. And now if you know the history of the Cossacks, you know that they were not pleasant to Jews. One of the Ukrainian personalities, really a history for his resistance uh, to, uh, uh, to Poland and to Russia, was Hetman Chelnitsky, who from 1648 to 1657 led a rebellion against Poland's hegemony over Ukraine and ended up ultimately with the Cossacks swearing allegiance to the Tsar of Russia. During this time, between 100,000 and 500,000 Jews were massacred by him. Cossacks and Jews do not have a very pleasant history. But here were these Ukrainians dressed like Cossacks, celebrating a Jewish festival for of freedom in their costume that came to represent for them not suppression of the Jews, but freedom with the Jews and Ukrainian independence. If Chelmnitsky could have seen this, he would be rolling in his grave. And I had to speak with them. And so at the end of the Seder, I did just that. I met Igor, a 30-year-old Ukrainian living in Poland for a few years. Diana, an 18-year-old about to start college that now had to flee. Daniel, a 24-year-old born in Kiev and raised in Australia and who spoke perfect Ukrainian with an Australian accent. They had come from all points 
to dedicate themselves, to put their lives on hold, to build a brick in a new world. They celebrated Passover, our festival of freedom. They turned it into their own festival of freedom. The bread of affliction they ate was their pain, and the maror was their bitterness. The wine was their sweetness, their optimism, and they know that they are helping to create a new life for their countrymen and women. The parsley was that symbol of their new life. The Seder was not simply a ritual or a chance to have a meal. It was a living moment for them that I know none of them will ever forget. Somewhere between 200, 250 people celebrated that meal, and most of them were not Jewish. And of those nearly 250, every one of us saw the Seder and Passover not simply as a ritual to be observed, but a ritual of renewal, dedication, and freedom from an oppression that was happening six or seven kilometers from where we sat. And one more thing about the Seder. Remember Nastya, the young woman with the five-year-old who had to leave her parents and her husband in Ukraine? An hour before the Seder, Nastya received word that her parents had made it to Poland. If that isn't a Passover festival of freedom to remember, I don't know what is. This trip was not a vacation. I sat on the floor of a depot sorting clothes and pain relievers that ended up in the hands of Ukrainian refugees. Every single thing you donated was given to a mother or a child. The toys we donated are now in the hands of an infant or toddler or a young child in Poland. The underwear, which by the way is the most valued and needed item for obvious reasons, is now being worn by the few men and hundreds of women and children who have now had to rebuild their lives and are rebuilding their lives. The $15,000 Beth Miriam raised out of the $750,000 our group raised is paying for food, for shelter, for, for professional counseling that every refugee will benefit from. What we all did was change lives for the better. And I want to share another story, another anecdote. Krakow was the center of Jewish life in Europe before World War II. Of the then 65,000 Jews in Krakow, almost none survived. But there is a Jewish quarter in Krakow that is still intact because Krakow was not bombed during the war, either by the Germans or the Russians or the Americans. It's a medieval city that remains intact. It is almost like the Jewish quarter was waiting patiently to come alive again. And I'm happy to report that it is. Jews from Ukraine and Poland are rediscovering their Jewish connections in Krakow thanks to the extraordinary work of the Jewish Community Center. The only JCC to have been established, paid for, and supported by Prince Charles of England and who gets regular reports on its work, by the way. These Ukrainian Jews specifically can rebuild their Jewish lives, and the Polish Jews, many of whom had families that had to go underground during the Soviet era, are beginning to blossom and discover who they are and where they come from. It is an extraordinary transformation. Krakow is coming alive Jewishly once again, 
and its Jewish spirit is returning thanks to the Jewish organizations, the JCC, and the sense that Poland is once again a safe place for the Jews. But no matter what difficulties the Jews of Poland face, what challenges the Ukrainians in Poland face, and what the political and social dynamics have yet to reveal, the world has truly come together to do something extraordinary. To see Jews and Gentiles from Israel, Mexico, Australia, the United States, Canada, Honduras, Poland, Russia, Spain, and the Czech Republic, and so many others that I met from all points, tells me that the Jewish notion of tikkun olam, the perfecting of the world, is alive and well. The trip was called Hineni. It was a biblical phrase that was used when God called a prophet. It literally means, here I am. But it is more than that. It is an enthusiastic response to a call for a need. But, being the grammarian I am, it is inaccurate. It should not have been called Hineni. Here I am. It should have been called Hinenu. Here we are. We are the ones who sold lemonade and little silver to buy food. We are the ones who donated religious school tzedakah coins to help pay for a professional crisis counselors. We are the ones who made sure to bring checks to the temple so we could take it to Poland or took the time to get online and make a donation. We are the ones who donated clothes and schlepped to Walmart to buy them out of underwear. We are the ones who emptied the shelves of Motrin, Tylenol, and aspirin. We, among so many other rabbis in their congregations, brought them more than 4,000 pounds of goods. We are the ones, among millions of others, who helped a total stranger begin a new life. He nay knew. Here we are indeed. And our presence continues to be keenly felt and deeply appreciated by those who had to flee their homes in the blink of an eye. Finally, one last story that lets us all know how our work and effort and support is making a difference. After one particularly emotionally and physically draining day, three other rabbis and I rented those little scooters to scoot around Krakow. And of course, we had to take a picture. A young woman was walking in the park where we were, and we asked her to take our picture, which she did so willingly. We tried to say thank you in Polish, which we totally butchered, by the way. And she said something innocuous, but on reflection, truly profound. She said in her native language, Nepolska Ukrainian, not Polish, Ukrainian. I don't speak Polish. I only speak Ukrainian. Here in Krakow was a Ukrainian refugee, safe, well-clothed, happy to be safe from the dangers and death that only a few weeks before had enveloped her. In the blink of an eye, her life changed, and in the blink of an eye, so did ours. In Poland, I brought all of you with me, and in Poland, in a way, we remain. None of us blinked when we had the opportunity to do something truly profound and life-changing. I brought your love and care with me and implanted it into the hearts of the people I reached. Your Shem Tov, your good name, now reverberates at all of the border crossings in Peshemeshel, in the crisis centers, in the streets of Krakow, in the joy of a Seder, and in the tangibles of aspirin, underwear, and stuffed animals.
When Moses led the Jews out of Egypt, almost immediately the Jews started fetching and wanted to return to Egypt for the, quote, good old days of cucumbers and melons, unquote. Their minds were filled with regret about leaving Egypt since now they had to rebuild lives that they never knew. Today, the Ukrainians are building their lives and from what I can tell, are not complaining about where they are. And the only reason they aren't complaining is because of Hinenu. Here we and millions of others were, and here we and millions of others helped, and here our spirit remains. We responded in kindness and sympathy and love, and we did so in the blink of an eye. And that is why this trip, though not a vacation, was life-changing for every one of us. Shabbat Shalom.